Good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, Ambassador of 805 Connect and your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and encouragement. Thanks to our podcasting partner, Pullstring Press, for this great studio, and to Patrick, my co-host. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Mark. I want to welcome uh, just another one of the smart kids in class, uh, Andy <laughs> Patterson. Uh, were you? Did you sit in the front row in school? I did often. Yes. How did I know that? <laughs> You're you just you've got a. I mean, we've, we've known each other for a few minutes, and you've got a presence about you, and you're kind of leaned in, and I get that you're. You, you were the kid in the front of the class. One of the first words you said, though, when you walked in was about leadership. Yeah. Um, I mentioned to you when I came in that I've listened to a lot of the previous episodes, and you asked me one of the themes that have popped out to me. So uh, leadership has certainly come up in a few of the episodes that I'm interested in. Yeah. I, I'm even more focused on that now uh, going into the new year as, as I'm really thinking about leadership, leadership lessons, being a Sherpa to other people and helping mm-hmm. and trying to find out what it, what is it about leadership and and the people we talk to? Where how does that affect them? Tell tell us what you what's your day job? Uh, my day job is I am a visiting assistant professor of public policy at California Lutheran University. So the School of Management um, has an MBA program, of course. We also have an MPPA program, which is a master's in public policy and administration. Um, an analogous degree in some other institutions is an MPA. That's what I have from Colorado, a master's in public administration. And some schools offer an MPP, a master's in public policy. But the, uh, the best uh, way to describe it is it is a degree that's equivalent to an MBA, but for the public sector. I'm, we had uh, Salud in here uh, recently, and I'm, I'm very interested in what drives people to go to work in the public sector with it from an outsider's view sure. it feels like the absolute last thing I would want to go do where I've got to you know be elected and you've got to you know just all the various things that there are sure do you see um because you're seeing students who want to get into the public, they want to get a master's in this, right? Well, yeah, the only correction I would put on that is I have a lot of my students, I would say at least a third, um, are already employed by the government sector or a nonprofit and want to get that next step up the ladder. And the master's is the bare minimum requirements for the next job up the ladder. So about a third of my current students are already employed by one of the local governments, meaning the county of Ventura or one of the cities in Ventura or a nonprofit that works with the cities of the county. Can you dispel then for that idea of, okay, so they're just on autopilot and they're not learning anything new and they're not actually improving their skill set. They're just, they're just degreeing up. They're just getting a new degree. Uh, You mean that they're on autopilot in their job? No, I mean like, like that, that, Okay, I'm in the public sector, and the only way for me to advance is to go get a piece of paper that says I, sh- I should move up. Sure, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. What I guess I meant by that was just that for some people who are in their five years into their first job out of undergrad, mm-hmm. and they want that next position up, and the bare minimum requirements is an MPA. So I would like to maybe describe it as early, middle, 
or maybe middle career professionals in the government sector. I also have a lot of students, about again, about a third, that are in the private sector but desperately want to be in government or nonprofit jobs because they don't like their job. And they um, would like the MPPA as their credentials to get into the, the government sector. Um, and I've had many elected officials uh, in my class before. In fact, uh, my first ever MPA class I taught in Colorado, which was in 2010, I had a uh, assistant uh, city manager of uh, Aurora, Colorado, actually. Um, and, you know, no small town. Uh, so, you know, what am I doing as a... Uh, <laughs> 28-year-old teaching this gentleman about uh, public affairs and public administration. So he said, hey, you know, I could come in and do a presentation on um, budgeting, for instance, because I kind of run the budgeting for the whole city of uh, Aurora. And, you know, I said, well, you know, if you'd be willing to do that, I, you could turn in that instead of a paper, just a great presentation. And he was like, oh, thanks so much. Like I was doing him a favor, you know, yeah, obviously right. in the end he was doing me a favor because sure. he could talk about a real world um, and I have a lot of that. I have a lot of county employees who currently are in my classes who are talking about the general plan update that Ventura County is doing um, or some of the other initiatives that the cities are doing, for instance, so, which is fascinating. So I get to. What's the, uh, they say, you said that a third of them are currently in the private sector and they want to be in the public sector mm -hmm. work in government. Mm -hmm. What's the number one allure? Uh, I think you, you mentioned public service and that for a lot of people, it might be their last option. I, I would say that for a lot of the people that I, the circles I traffic in, it's, it's the first calling. Um, so to me, I, I had very little drive after working at Boston Market when I was 16 to, uh, <laughs> to ever work in the private sector. Um, so Great mashed just, potatoes. Um, yeah, yeah, it was great. I didn't last there very long, but I, uh, it was a fun, fun job when you're 16. Yeah. Um, no offense to Boston Market. I don't, don't get Mark any calls. Please don't call them. Um, Are they still in business? I, I think so. Okay. I believe so. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's about serving the community. I think it's about being on the forefront of some of the uh, most challenging uh, problems that we face together. I mean, uh, many people have been attributed this line. I've heard that it's Daniel Patrick Moynihan, former senator's line, but it's government is just a word uh, for what we choose to do together. And huh. so if you are if you're willing to accept the fact that the private sector does some things fascinatingly well, but not all things, we need a government. I mean, you guys all ate breakfast, I assume you too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to make sure that the government's going to make sure that the food you put in your bodies isn't tainted with uh, horrible uh, diseases and chemicals in it. And, you know, when we hear about the Chipotle's, or the Jack in the Boxes, they're actually relatively rare for instance, and you drove sure. on a road to get here or you rode a bike to get here. In either case, that bike or that car was probably uh, sent through some regulations to make sure, you know, your internal combustion engine didn't turn into an external combustion engine on your way here and traffic lights and roads that are safe. So the government does a lot. Um, and I think that, you know, considering the public sector as something that's just this slow moving, inefficient machine is really missing the broader point. Which is? Well, I think that government and the private sector are com are, 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 are completely uh, different, but only in the unimportant ways. So, uh, uh, you know, budgeting, personnel, finance, accounting, long-term planning, leadership is all exactly the same in the two. So, again, um, I might have missaid that line, but, you know, government and, and business are, are fundamentally alike, but only in the unimportant ways. I mean, they're, what they're much different about is the role that um, – you know, outside entities might have the fact that, you know, people like running for office are going to have different incentives about the short and the long term that maybe a leader of a business might have in the sense that they're thinking about their next election, 
Whereas maybe a person who runs a business is thinking about, I don't know, what do they say is the best? Uh, well, the next quarter. Five year, five year plan, maybe. I mean, I hear, I hear people say, I wouldn't invest in a company that had a 30 year business plan because we don't know what's going to happen. I've just heard people say that. And I don't know if you agree or if that's true. Um, but uh, I think that in, in the public sector, those individuals who are going up for election might have a shorter term goal set. But people who are working for the county on what's our next 20 years of county planning look like? What kind of trees should we be planting for what this community is going to look like in 20 or 30 years? Have a much different uh, set of objectives. I also think that broader, when you're serving your community um, and you need to be responsive to whatever the culture is in which you serve, I think that's a slightly different, um, your, your return on investment is thought of in a different manner, I think, so. What does socially equitable mean? Uh, so socially equitable be, would be, for instance, that, um, okay, well, let's put it in terms, maybe, maybe we'll do, I don't want to do too much of this comparing and contrasting the business and the public sector unless you want to. But <laughs> one, one, uh, one example might be if you had a mass transit system that was run by a private sector and one that was one run by a public sector and you were going to compare two uh, types of agencies running those public, sec uh, public transit sectors. The efficiency metric, which is ultimately what most businesses are looking at, I'm not saying only looking at, but what they're looking at primarily, would, if they were in a budget crunch, shut down the lines that were the least efficient, had least ridership, yada, yada, in terms of still making okay. money. Okay. The social equity piece from the public sector side would be to make sure that any underserved communities in terms of communities that have less access to, for instance, uh, great walkability of neighborhood, fresh produce and what have you, and the people that need to travel further for their jobs, that those lines wouldn't definitely get shut down just because they were the most expensive to run. In other words, sometimes it's about getting equal access or sometimes equity doesn't necessarily mean equal. Obviously, that's why it's a different word. That might mean serving a community more if they need the help. So that's what social equity would mean, for instance. The, um, th these are the, the bigger challenges. What's the biggest challenge facing the region that, that we're not paying attention to? Well, uh, I'll answer, I think, from a, a species level first. And then I'll narrow okay. down. No, then I'll narrow <laughs> okay. down to the 805. So as humans, as yeah. humans, uh, it's uh, climate change, which you know some people call global warming, which is not a great term for it. Um, global weirding is a better term for it because uh, I think even climate change is um, in, in, in erroneous term. It's not just about change. I have a, a friend who works at the EDC here in town uh, and is an environmental lawyer, and so I'm giving him full credit, uh, Brian. But it's your line, but he refers to it as uh, catastrophic and irreversible anthropogenic climate destabilization. You know, because he doesn't want to be an alarmist, so he's just calling it what it is. <laughs> Um, that's, I think, the biggest challenge facing our species. I think the biggest challenge facing California is uh, affordable housing mm -hmm. and how that's, how that's paired with economic growth in the mm -hmm. long run. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's not dissimilar from the region. I think affordable housing is a, is a huge issue, um, and it's one of the things I've been focused on a lot in the last few years. What's the change that needs to happen with that? Is it our understanding of what uh, housing looks like? In the sense of like that that picket fence with the you know acre or whatever, like are we do we need to recalibrate or what's the? 
Yeah, I think you're never going to get away from the fact that different people have a different value system around the concept of density, right? Some people mm. are always going to want a yard, and some people are always going to want maybe a front yard and a backyard, or people are always going to want to be able to let their dog out. And other people are perfectly happy living in a walk-up or an elevator uh, building that serves with with no yard, and it's an efficiency, and you can just walk down one flight of stairs, and then there, you're, there are all your shops that you need to buy all your food in, and other people are going to... Uh, be able to access that. There are more and more people who are enjoying the latter, especially younger people. And maybe when they get older, they want the former. <laughs> but I think we could be developing more mixed-use housing um, that could uh, that could accommodate the people who are okay with more density, like myself. So, I'm just I'm 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 that echoes accurately with what I see in my my students that I'm teaching at a community college. They're not they're not getting driver's licenses. They're not owning cars because of the they want to put their they're valuing their money going into different things. And I think that that's just that's exciting for me to to uh, to to think that we we're going to have to change the American the American dream has changed and that's what what we what the mission statement for for growing up and evolving into an adult life in America has has just changed and there's no there's no there's no kind of reversing that or going back to this this ideal of the you know 40 acres and a mule mm-hmm. Density seems to be a, a dirty word up here. <laughs> mm-hmm. I embrace it. <laughs> How is what's the right way? Because because I I mean I agree with you completely. Mm-hmm. Um, yet I've seen I was involved in the economic community project you know 25 years ago here in Santa Barbara mm-hmm. and density was just that was you know we we need to we can't expand we're sure. surrounded on three sides sure. by sure. by mountains yeah so. when when wa- when the ocean is one of your barriers you know yeah. not much you can do about it right that. exactly and all we have to do is have a fire on the 101 and we know how isolated we are or yeah. a, a train spill or some something like that yep. and we need to have that density mm-hmm. who who's who's providing who's where's the biggest resistance coming from is it the populace when like the planners get it and they're figuring it out and then when they go for community review that's where things get shot down or challenged well i I think it's it's probably um accurate to say that at any given public input session in any uh county or city that i've been in recently uh, about density issues that there is a diversity of opinions but i don't know that uh People who are often okay with density don't bother showing up to those meetings. Um, you know, as, as with a lot of debates, it's the loudest voices that are on the margins that sometimes get the press line, but I'm not sure that they are the majority. Um, and so, yeah, anytime there's going to be a public input session on a project in downtown anywhere in California, probably downtown anywhere USA, you're going to have some people who are going to show up and scream about density. Um, but, you know, the people who are okay with density are, you know, uh, not bothering to show up for that meeting because they're, you know, recording a podcast somewhere or, you know, working their, <laughs> working their second job at night as a barista after, you know, uh, working at a restaurant during the day. And so I think that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where all the resistance is coming from. And I also, I also don't think that it's, it's easy to say that it's uh, the developers because I know plenty of developers that wish the SOAR regulations in Ventura, for instance, that save, SOAR? So, save our agricultural resources. It basically meant that they drew a line around the incorporated cities within the county and then uh, had very strict requirements on developing based on where those lines were. and the Can't turn farms into housing development. That's the idea is that yeah. once a piece of land is zoned ag, it, it can't change without a vote, which makes it very difficult to change. And we have a number of people who are uh, on either side of that debate. It's been in place for a while, and it's up for revote um, in 2020, and, uh, and it will either be extended another 30 years or not. 
and there are both sides of that looking to make it more uh, keep it as it is and some developers making to look at more uh, loose guidelines. But all I was getting at was that plenty of developers would like to build more density projects and do infill development in places like Ventura and Oxnard um, because the other projects on the outskirts are more expensive or impossible. How so. do you teach, how are you, you talking with your students about those um, mitigating that loud uh, squeaky wheel? How do you talk sure. to, how do you, what, what's a strategy for, for uh, you know, appropriately listening to a squeaky wheel to understand, is the wheel about to come off or is this just a squeak that we're going to have to, it's part of just the mix? Yeah, sure. And obviously my answer to that question is going to be d different if I was, if I'm just answering as a public policy professor versus if I was an elected official, for instance, if I was on the county uh, supervisors, for instance, I would have to listen to that squeaky wheel differently. But I, I, my, 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 my geeky professor answer is a lot of times some people just need to say something mm. and to, to be heard. And if they're heard, then that's enough. Um, other times, a group of people um, will rise up to make a change happen, and they will either win or not in the marketplace of ideas um, in terms of public policy. Um, that's our equivalent to the private sector of, you know, competition between businesses, I suppose. Um, and, you know, the, it, the closest thing we have to a law of gravity in the social sciences is what's called the logic of collective action. Um, and if you've never heard of that before, a listener out there or to Mark and Patrick, I would highly suggest you Google it. But the <laughs> idea is basically that, that entire sentence. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is basically that a small group of people who are more homogeneous with a very strong interest in the topic, meaning financially or ideologically, will always win out over a large heterogeneous group of people who don't have as much skin in the game. It's basically the mathematical equation to the fact they, the line attributed to many people, but often to uh, Mother Teresa that never doubt that a small group of people can change the world. In fact, they're the only ones that ever have. In other words, if you have a small group of people who are incredibly dedicated to an idea, they will beat out any large group that's less dedicated. Spoiler alert, that's uh, The Last Star Wars. Oh, that's really? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm acting like I haven't seen it. Of course I have. <laughs> you know, how many times have you seen it? <laughs> Just the once. Okay. Uh, I love that, the logic of collective action. That, that's, Ma uh, Man Kerr Olson is the gentleman who came up with it. How do you spell that? Uh, M-A-N-C-U-R-O-L-S-O-N or E-N. I'm a terrible speller, so I apologize. I really, I need to get the bell for when people spell things correctly. Just so, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, I feel like a lot of times we're doing the spelling, uh, the spelling quiz up here. So it's, it's good to ding. To the listener, just Google logic of collective action. It'll be spelled properly on Wikipedia, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, you, you, as a good professor, you, you write a lot. You're published extensively. Um, you, that's a, a great way to communicate. It's something just dawned on me. We, we've been talking about communication as a big part of leadership, you know, being able mm -hmm. to effectively communicate. And this idea of um, uh, understanding how your audience best receives that communication. Mm -hmm. And right now it seems to be visual. 90% uh, of people in the airport today, they're staring at a mobile phone. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not reading. Mm -hmm. uh, they're watching. Uh, this is just an off question. As mm -hmm. a professor, it's all mm -hmm. about getting published. Mm -hmm. um, do you publish video works? I actually do for my students. Uh, that's I mean, not is that a thing now? You mean in, in terms of a teaching pedagogy, well, I mean, in for, terms of for, a teaching for you? So I mean, when I when I you know it didn't take a lot of googling to sure. find lots and lots of stuff that you've done, and everything is publications and things that you've written. Mm -hmm. and it just dawned on me that possibly if we're reaching a younger audience, doing the same thing as a video narrative might 
I, I don't know. It's just I'm curious. Well, I, I, I for a moment uh, will just say in terms of the publishing aspect of being an academic in this country, I think that um, different schools value your publication record differently compared to your teaching, for instance. And the, the traditional term for this is an R1 or a T1, research one or a teaching one institution. So UCSB, for instance, would be an R1 institution. Uh, Cal Lutheran would be considered probably more like a T1 institution, which isn't to say that the others don't, not to say that UCSB doesn't care about your teaching, nor does it say that Cal Lutheran doesn't care about your research. It's just that that's a dichotomy in my field of business. Uh, sort of like, I guess, what you guys would when you were talking about a web dev person versus whatever another thing is. I don't know. You guys know better than me. Uh, so that's just a dichotomy of two different schools. So I do think that there's a bit of an issue with academic research being even available at all to the general public. Oh. So, so when you ask me, is it that my, oh. re- my reading is getting to people, I'm fairly certain that even my most widely read articles that are published are read by, you know, a small group of academics who study the exact same thing as me, uh, my mother, <laughs> and maybe a few other people who happen to Google a term that ends up finding me. Um, but you un- just described the demographic of my podcast yes. town. <laughs> that's what happens. Uh, so I do think that there's even, an, uh, there's even an issue within academia around a broader access to, um, to the way academic research is structured. And, and just to de- de- sort of delve into this just for a, a brief moment more, if you knew the exact title of one of my articles that you wanted to read and you were just at home on your Google and you typed it in, a lot of times you'd hit a paywall you wouldn't even be able to see oh. the full PDF. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I actually have noticed that, yes. Yes. Okay, so now if you were a student or a professor at a university that has access to that journal, right. you go right to it because you've logged into your library system and now you can find it. In other words, access to even peer-reviewed good work. You asked about my students reading it. I'm not even certain that the general public has enough access to the peer-reviewed research as mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, some people claim is not really a problem. I don't know. Uh, but I, to your broader question, thinking about video, when it comes to communicating with my students, one trick that I have done is I started uh, there's this a web little app inside Blackboard, which is sort of the online shell that supports all of our work at Cal Lutheran. It supports a lot of institutions across the country. Um, it's where I can put all my syllabus and all the readings that I can post for my students. It's where I take attendance. It's where I grade. It's you know, all that sort of stuff. And um, there'll be a module for each class, for instance. And one of the apps that's inside Blackboard is this company called Panopto that's just a really cool video uh, app. And I'm sure that there's a whole bunch out there, And but this is the one that's for Blackboard. So before my classes, sometimes a whole week before, sometimes just that day, I sit down in front of my, my, lap, my desktop at work. And I turn on the app, and I, I'm staring at my screen, but it's my PowerPoint. And I'm giving the quote-unquote lecture to my screen. And I'm being recorded. And then I, and when I'm done, I, I hit stop. I can go back and edit any time. I kept saying, um, or I scratched my face. I mm-hmm. don't, spoiler, I don't usually because I'm okay with imperfect work. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I post that video for my students. And the reason I do that is because even if, English is your first language, I don't expect my students to get everything from a time I'm speaking. And I typically don't lecture for more than 14 to 17 minutes in a row without stopping to do something else for lots of reasons. I also speak very quickly because I'm from a small little hamlet you guys might have heard of called Queens originally, and we just talk fast there. 
Um, and then lastly, I do have a few students every class that are international students, and I don't want to assume that because English is their second language that they understood a lot. So anyway, that video is posted, and then they can go through it, and they can go slide by slide, which is cool, right? So that it's almost like it looks like a CD track back in the old days when you're, like, clicking back and forth to the next song. So I don't know if that long-winded answer to your question do about... Do they have to the come airport. to class? They do have to come to class, but those videos are supporting anyone who needs a little extra help. But yeah. They, I, they do come to class. It's interesting you said that your um, your lectures are 14 to 17 minutes long, which is, uh, I'm a longtime Tedster, as mm -hmm. listeners know, and that format is 18 minutes. Right. And it's the ideal length. Right. Uh, to be, and you can cram a lot of, a, a lot of ideas yeah. into 18 minutes. Yeah, I've heard the 18-minute TED Talk thing and then the Pecha Kucha, if you're familiar yeah, with that one. Yeah, very much so. Six and minutes and 46 seconds. Exactly. So I think that there's a range on this, and I think that a lot of data just supports anything under 20 is really helpful. And I try to keep it to more to the 15 or 17 in my head, not because I, I don't like TED and I don't want to cut it off at 18, because sometimes I go long after 18 minutes <laughs> if it's a, I'm excited. But I'm breaking it up a lot with conversation. You don't seem like you get excited very yeah. easily. <laughs> right, and I'm not talkative at all, clearly. <laughs> um, just talk about the the when you're not at work. Mm -hmm. uh, you, I, I find you like to fish. I do. I like to fly fish. In, in fact, I uh, I consider myself a fly fisherman who teaches college during the day to afford his fly fishing addiction, as opposed to a college professor who fly fishes on the side. When so. and when you're from Colorado, where you can fly fish, you know, is your backyard. Mm -hmm. um, little harder to do here. So how far do you have to go to fly fish here? I have to go less than a quarter of a mile from what? my house, which is in downtown Ventura, because I live right by the pier, which is right over the walkover. Because ready for mind blown? Any fish you can catch on a spin rod, you can catch on a fly rod. You just need different equipment. So I fly fish in the surf. Mm. No kidding. I stand there about knee high in the water, casting out to in front of me, or sometimes on the jetties. So I'm standing on the rocks with wave crashing into me, and I'm fishing from the, the surf right there in front of my house. I'm guessing you're catching calico bass. Calico bass, though, the, the, the number one, the modal fish to catch is, is the barred surf perch. But there's a bunch of different species of surf perch to catch. Um, and then the, uh, believe it or not, the leopard sharks are caught quite a bit. And then the unicorn would be some of the bigger fish that are possible, uh, some of the things that are more in the croakers and jack family, as well as, in theory, a white sea bass. But that's pretty rare to be able to nail from the surf. But from a so. kayak, that makes it a lot easier. But as a fly fisherman, soaking bait, meaning dropping a big weight with a piece of squid attached to it from your kayak, is not my most exciting kind of fishing. So I tend to not do that. I'm interested in surface action. Uh, so halibut is also a fish that we catch as well in the surf. Aunt, but uh, halibut, aren't they a bottom fish in, on the They sand? are, but they're super predatory, and they come crashing up to the top to hit something just like a basswood in a small pond. No kidding. So I'm stripping across, and across the surface, something that looks like a small little bait fish, and the, and the halibut will come and crash up from the top. And that's a good fight because it's a real flat fish, obviously. Yeah, so, right, right, so imagine, right. you know, hauling up like a, you know, even though it only might weigh a few pounds, it, it feels like you're hauling up a middle schooler on that line, and it takes <laughs> you a while, so... Today on Fish Talk. <laughs> Today on the 805 Fish Talk. So, so how do you, okay, so let's, so could, could you give me a leadership lesson and all you can use as anecdotes are fishing stories? Hmm, yeah, probably. Um, I went up to Mammoth and Bishop area last year with uh, two colleagues of mine at, at Cal Lutheran and one of my best fishing buddies uh, in the world who lives here in Santa Barbara. 
and the four of us went up there. And one of the two colleagues of mine had done some fly fishing, uh, but I think he'd be, if he was sitting next to me, he would say, you know, he was relatively new to it or hadn't done it as much. And then the other gentleman had never done it before. And I think that just standing there and letting someone see how passionate you are on a subject matter and letting that gentleman see how passionate I was about all the different ways you can approach a river, thinking through things like, well, 99% of the time, the trout's going to be looking upstream. So you don't fish downstream, you fish upstream, right? So they're, they're looking in front and they don't see you coming. Um, and not just jumping into the river and scaring all the fish off. Instead, thinking slowly, kneeling down by the water for a long time, looking at the bugs that are crawling up the plants, maybe turning over a rock under the water to see what uh, cases you see that are holding the larvae of the insects as well. Okay, so now I'll stretch the metaphor for your leadership uh, training. Maybe that's about testing the waters and understanding your context before you jump in too deep. Maybe that's about people respond to passion, which I believe strongly in my heart that they yep. do. Yeah. Um, and understanding your environment is the most important aspect I would imagine to keep a business alive. And it's absolutely true about fishing too. Um, so I, I know that I have a, a background in, 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 in my background in biology and specifically in bug training makes me not unique in the world of fly that fishing, but background in bug training. Yes. So my undergraduate degree is in biology, specifically ecology, evolution, and animal behavior. And my specialty was butterflies. And um, so I've had a non-trivial amount of training in entomology. For those of you not in the studio, Mark just gave a very affirming <laughs> nod. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I remember that and I wrote that down. I was saving that. Um, mm -hmm. Six months ago, we were given our first chrysalis. Oh, uh, cool. Of Monarch? Yes. Yeah. And it transformational. I mean, I, I can, I've actually told stories in New York with head of HR of a mm -hmm. 12,000 person company sure, sure. about how they're, they need to emerge from this chrysalis. Sure. And the, Beautiful. Uh, I mean, it, it's just, it's, I could do a four day class on it. When I saw that you were studying, you had studied butterflies, mm -hmm. um, I've got 800 questions about that, which we, I would save for another time. Okay. We'll but come I, back for just a butterfly only Well, I, I think that we have this uh, very unique thing in Santa Barbara where you can go get a milkweed plant at a nursery. They're everywhere in the spring, and it will attract butterflies, and they'll, they'll uh, deposit a little single white egg underneath the leaves, which you can find very easy. You don't mm -hmm. need a magnifying glass. Mm -hmm. And you can bring that leaf in and so it doesn't get uh, the predatory flies don't attack it. Mm -hmm. Or the wasps. Or the wasps. And you can grow that in, you know, in 10 days it'll it'll hatch and you'll have a little larva and then that'll grow. So over a 30 day period you can cultivate. And then what we do is once they turn to the chrysalis, we attach the chrysalis to an orchid that we get from Trader Joe's and we give it to someone about three days before it hatches. Cool. Because that, that someone needs some beauty or transformation in their life. Mm -hmm. And the effect that it has, most people say, I didn't do this, I haven't done this since the third grade. And yet the, the profound impact it has on a, you know, a, a sober adult. Sure. It's spectacular. It's amazing. It's the, a beautiful thing. It's, I, I, I imagine that it's not a coincidence that transformation metamorphosis, the, the chrysalis into a butterfly, uh, 
is a long-standing metaphor uh, in our culture and the cultures long before us and is consistently showing up and reading all the time uh, about that. I think it's a beautiful thing. If you think about specifically, I know we're not going to make this all about butterflies, but if you think about a caterpillar, which has, you know, six legs along until those rest look like they're, they look like legs, but they're called proto legs. They're basically just extensions of the abdomen and the long little worm looking thing with simple eyes and chewing mouth parts emerges eventually with a thing with six legs, but four wings and a straw for a mouth, a roll up straw nonetheless, and complex eyes. That would be as if we had our eyes we had until we turned 40 and then we woke up with the Hubble telescope for eyes as well. Um, and our whole mouth changed, which would be fascinating. So uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful creatures. Is it, I've got a, a technical question. When it goes from the, it's hanging mm -hmm. and it turns into a J mm -hmm. and then it, in a, about an 11 minute period, it mm -hmm. has this violent shaking mm -hmm. where it's shaking off the body mm -hmm. and it turns into that green, mm -hmm. that whatever that, there's a specific name I'm sure for that, which I don't know. Is the inside, I've been told the inside of that is kind of jelly. Well, in between, I just basically described the difference between the, the larva and the adult again by making jokes about the eyes and the legs and, and everything, the worm shape and the mouth changing completely. Um, it is completely liquefied at one point in that okay, stage, in that metamorphosis. It and it is theoretically, theoretically possible to have taken that liquid out and put it back in and everything would still reform. But it's probably not the case that you could actually do that because they're probably still lining up ways inside there based on genes to make sure that the wings are in the right place, for instance. Um, but yeah, at one point it's completely liquid, which again is a fascinating aspect of the metamorphosis. Well, and that's my undergrad. <laughs> At one point, I was completely liquid. <laughs> you could have pulled me out and put me back in, but I'm just saying it yeah. perfectly metaphors my undergrad. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm getting back to, I mean, it's more about transformation than it is mm -hmm. for leadership mm -hmm. in, in that way. But I, sure. I find that, do you think that informed what you're doing now? I mean, that was years ago. No, huh? no doubt about it, but I'll go back a little bit further. I was that kid in your, in your middle school, your high school class that started the recycling program that had dirt oh. on his pants because he was picking up the bugs and putting them in jars and, and labeling them. And we moved out of New York City when I was about 10 and we moved up to the suburbs about an hour north in a small town in called Ridgefield, Connecticut. Which was, <gasps> do, you, do you know Ridgefield? I'm from Ridgefield, Washington. Ah, well, Ridgefield, I don't know what Ridgefield, Washington is like, although I'm sure it's beautiful. It's just like, it's just like Ridgefield, Connecticut. I believe Twin it. Twin cities. <laughs> Ridgefield, Connecticut has a lot of open space and had even more so when I was growing up there as a middle schooler and high schooler. A very small town, 25,000 people. So expressing an interest in protecting the, and the woods and, and learning about the woods made uh, it very easy for me to end up uh, even as a volunteer and a junior member of the planning commission, believe it or not, really? at, at the young age of being in high school. Um, so really the, the adult planning yeah, commission. Yeah. Yeah. Now keep in mind for a small town, the planning commission, you know, is a little bit different scale than when you're talking about the planning commission for a city of Ventura or Santa Barbara. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was so interested that I got a, a spot on that. That put me in a position to get to travel even more of the woods and the trails in my area than I, than I ever wanted to. So I knew ever since I was about, you know, eight, 10 years old that I wanted to be a biologist. <laughs> and, um, so I, you know, was told to go to a good school and, you know, get into a good, good program. I did that, went to be a biology major, was getting good grades. I did my junior year abroad in Costa Rica, like you're supposed to do, to learn about the tropics. And uh, went on. And my, my initial plan was to get a Ph.D. in biology. And so I was in Boulder with the plan of getting a Ph.D. in biology. And very soon into it, it just wasn't for me. 
Um, and the reason for that, uh, and not to throw any of those faculty members under the bus, because I'm sure I just maybe didn't meet the right people and things have changed, but I met some brilliant people who didn't care that much about their research being practically applicable and affecting the world around us. Um, so we're vacuum sucking endangered species of mammals out of ground areas so we can grow condos on that land all across Colorado at the time, and that seemed very disastrous to me. And yet a lot of these people didn't care about affecting that and having their in research inform it. I saw a lot of ways in which scientific research from the biology field was not informing the planning process. I'd always been interested in, in government, but I was never interested in political science. Again, I think I just met the wrong people early, but I thought poli-sci was basically just a way to understand why the French and Germans didn't get along for most of the 20th century, mm -hmm. which didn't seem mm -hmm. very interesting to me. So um, I was a biologist. I was a biologist for the state of New York. Um, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the Carner Blue Butterfly, which is an endangered species. Um, of a protected butterfly, the same family of butterflies that uh, Vladimir Nabokov studied, by the way, um, in his side work, uh, a brilliant man who was also could have been a biologist in addition to being a writer. Uh, and I went on to be a biologist uh, with the Nature Conservancy in, in the state of New York and, again, moved to Colorado to do that, but got disillusioned really quickly and decided to try something else. Um, as to how it informs my work and getting back to your question of leadership, I know that my passion for environmental causes comes out in every single conversation that I have. I know that it is my greatest asset in the classroom, my passion, and um, the knowledge is second. So I get people who say things to me in classroom like, wow, you sure know a lot about this. And it's like, well, I better. It's what I've been doing full time my whole life, it feels like. If right. I can't get in front of people and talk about environmental issues, then uh, we got an issue. Um, Someone so. had said, um, it was actually my partner, we were uh, presenting, this is uh, 10, 11 years ago, we were presenting at a big Chamber of Commerce event, and everything failed. The computer <laughs> failed, the mm -hmm. internet failed, mm -hmm. power, I mean, everything. Mm -hmm. And it was almost a theater in the round kind of thing. Right. We couldn't hide. Right. Sure. And uh, she just pulled me just behind the screen a little bit because I was uh, not handling it M well. Melting mm -hmm. down is the mm -hmm. technical term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I, I, I'm much better at that. And she just looked at me and she just says, you live this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. You live this. So right. that's you. You said my passion is my greatest asset. Yeah. And, and, and I think that in general, uh, when it comes to leadership, I think having values based leadership is really important. And I think values based messaging is part of a leadership in both the public or the private sector. If you want people to follow you, if you want people to give you money. Uh, if you don't believe in what you're doing or if you don't believe in what you're asking money for, you're not going to have much luck. Um, but if you have an absolute passion for whatever it is you're doing, raising money for a nonprofit that you care about or raising money for a business that you really want to get started and speaks to your values, then you speak about those values. You speak about why you want to do this. You ask for the money and then you don't say sorry. You just ask for it. And you see the best leaders, both in the public and the private sector, are typically speaking from values-based leadership. And... Um, Spoiler alert, because I listen to the shows, I know you recently referenced that this is the year of the story for you. But long before I heard you say that, I have always said that stories are the way people actually communicate. So I would push back a little bit on your visual communication comments you made earlier. I think going back to the beginning of us as a species, I think that it's always been about stories more than anything else. I think we live in an era now where we're attached to our phones, but, but still it's stories that matter. And telling a good story about why you're doing it and why... Right, you've maybe heard of the story of me, the story of us, the story of now. And so this is the way, the best way to tell a story and to get people to listen to you. By the way, if you want a great example, 
of the story of me, the story of us, the story of now, go back to this is not an endorsement of an official candidate or official person learning for office. But if you go back to 2004, the speech that Barack Obama gave at the Democratic National Convention mm -hmm. back when he was still just an Illinois state senator, a great, a great version of the story of me, the story of us, the story of now. So. Um, you shook your head, Patrick, as you knew that. I did not know that, so I'm glad to have learned something there. That uh, I'm going to go look that up. That's our new T-shirt that we'll be putting on. <laughs> Hashtag me, us now. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I love that. I'm, what's interesting about the show, and as you said, you've listened to a lot of the episodes, is how, how diverse of voices we have, mm -hmm. but how similar the themes are around communication, leadership, relationships, uh, passion clearly is mm -hmm. one. You know, you're obviously very passionate about what you do. Mm -hmm. um, we've had some of your colleagues in here very passionate. I think that that passion is the fuel that drives you to stand in front of these, you know, these young kids. This, um, what's the, back to story, we also talk about the dragon. Like, where's the conflict? Where's the dragon in our story, the drama? What, where's, the, where's the dragon in, in if I'm going to go take get a career in public service, or I'm thinking as a business person, I'm going to maybe go volunteer to be a citizen representative on a community sure. project and somehow get involved and make a difference. Sure. Where's the what's what dragon should I be looking out for? Well, I'll I'll tell two dragon stories briefly, and I'm relating them to two classes I'm teaching right now. So one class I'm teaching right now is called implementation and analysis of public policy. It's one of the core classes our MPPA students have to take. It's basically a way to, you know, break down different policy options to solve a problem. They brainstorm on the problem. They brainstorm on possible solutions. They look at the evaluative criteria that they'll use to judge those alternatives and then look at the trade-offs and eventually make a decision. And that's what they write about for their papers for me. In that class, what we're often talking about as a dragon, I think, is the fact that we have become increasingly partisan in our country and in our politic in general. Uh, lots of people like to blame cable news, lots of people like to blame gerrymandering, lots of people like to blame a lot of different things, but uh, you know, we're also doing it to ourselves. We're very much self-sorting. Great book on that called The Big Sort, not The Big Short, which is also a great book, but The Big Sort, which is about how we are choosing to also surround ourselves with community that we agree with. Um, and so it's not just gerrymandering and it's not just cable news. It's also us doing it to ourselves. But for lots of reasons, we unfortunately live in a society where we only have two big baskets of ideas in this country, which is a real shame. In other countries that are developed, they have a lot more than two baskets. So if you agree with 20% of that basket, but really strongly, you sort of have to buy into the other 80%, mm. which I think is a shame. And so I think most of the time when people are speaking about politics, it's really the lizard brain that's talking. And there's some data on this. We've done brain scans of people and talk to them about politics. And the rational part of your brain, not really active. Um, but hmm. the part that cheers for sports and the, char <laughs> the part that has other really instinctual relationships, very active. So I think breaking down that and trying to get out of the lizard brain mode and trying to be able to actually look at policy problems and policy solutions from a rational standpoint is a dragon Wow. as it relates to that class. In sustainability, a class I'm teaching right now as well, sustainability policy, I would say the biggest dragon, well, I think the threat of, of global climate change is huge. But, but as far as a dragon goes, I think it's allowing ourselves to fall into these trade-offs where we think that, um, you know, protecting the environment means no growth. And it's not just that simple. 
there's plenty of ways that we can find compromise and win-wins. And sometimes it might mean no growth there, but it can mean growth over here. Um, and so I think one of the dragons around environmental issues, typically people like to frame it as, you know, business versus, you know, enviros. And I don't think it's that simple. I think it's much more that it's a complex idea. And again, we have to be willing to look at trade-offs and look at things a little bit more rationally, which unfortunately we're becoming increasingly less able to do. That, which goes back to the partisan bit. And part of politics, and we heard this recently, was a, your ability to compromise. Mm-hmm. Right? You've got to be good at that. But it seems like people are so stuck on their ideas that they're, they're less willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a question of, uh, you know, confirmation bias is a buzzword for it, too, which is confirm- confirmation bias. And I've heard you talk about it in here, and you, you'll know what it is the second I describe it, which is just that you look for news that reinforces yeah. the things you already know. And so you look for confirming ideas. And so that's the confirmation bias. The big bias. sort. Right. And so we look for confirmation bias. So people go to IamRight.com and they look for an article that they agree with. <laughs> IamRight.com. And, and then they keep spouting off that talking point. Um, well, and every, every major industry uses it to reaffirm your purchase. So Ford, Chevy, all of right. these you know, massive industries. Are, most of those commercials are not for new purchases. They're to affirm that you made the right choice in your initial purchase. Right. Which is, which is what gets, which leads us to the one way we can maybe break through that and the, and the partisan divide too is about, you know, identity-based messaging. So again, if you consider yourself as an environmentalist, I'm not just going to come up to you and say, you got to do this. I'm going to say, hey, did you know that most environmentalists compost at home? And if you care about the environment, you should be composting. And that person says, well, I'd like to think of myself as an environmentalist. I'm going to start composting. Did you know that most environmentalists try to cut out meat on Mondays? They do meatless Mondays. Oh, maybe I'll start doing that too, as opposed to saying this is what you should do. It's this is what people like you do. If you, this is what you consider yourself. So this is sort of the antidote to confirmation bias, the, the silver lining on the cloud I just described earlier with lizard brains. And on lizard brains, I think we need to close our conversation. Uh, we talked about dragons and lizards. Uh, that was and butterflies and fish and zoological podcast. Well, but in planning commission at fourteen uh, or fifteen, uh, thinking about what you wanted to be when you were eight to ten years old, I'm really whenever I'm around an eight or ten year old, I wonder is the conversation I'm having with them going to be the one they remember and repeat on a podcast 40 years from now. Yeah, and, and, I'll, and I'll just say, I know we're wrapping up, but you know there is a through line between wanting to become a biologist and being a butterfly biologist and eventually being an ecotourism guide in Costa Rica and Fiji and teaching scuba diving and then ending up in the classroom teaching environmental policy, which is that I've always had a, an obsession with serving my community and being understanding the context and the broader picture and solving these problems, but but also huge for the environment. So you know it's no surprise that I am a professor of public policy at this point in my life, and especially in environmental policy, but I also serve, for instance, at, at the pleasure of the City Council of Ventura. They appointed me to the Housing Authority of the City of Ventura so that I can work on affordable housing issues, and that, that's not a coincidence. I think that those there's a complete through line to me there in terms of our relationship to this planet and, and broader public service as well. Well, thank you. Yes, absolutely. I, and I, I, I if, I, if I could just mention California Lutheran University's programs down at the School of Management, fantastic. If you're in the area looking to get an MBA, an MPPA, and our other degrees, please check us out. And even if you're not going to be a full-time student, uh, mm-hmm. we, we're regularly publishing the open events that are down there at the Westlake Center. Uh, fascinating people. Mm-hmm. Do, do you go and, you know, be in a room with 120 other people? Uh, there's 
you know, you can listen by yourself, but it's also nice to go listen with a group of people. Yeah, absolutely. To our point earlier about passion, when you have enough of those people in a room, there's almost a vibration to the room that's oh, it's, pretty incredible. It's fantastic. And that's happening all over the region, it's, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. So uh, we, it, it, as a loyal listener, you know mm-hmm. we're coming to the point of the show where we get to name the episode. I, I will do that in a moment, but I do want to just say it's amazing that a public policy professor managed to get out without buzzword bingo getting called on me. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing my best not to talk too much jargon. but uh, you have to, job. When, Whenever you say a piece of jargon that you know has just come out of your mouth, you have to immediately follow it with a definition because Mark is already starting to circle the way. I was ready for it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure uh, the best. I was trying to think ahead of time what so I could sound like I was so brilliant that I came up with it right away. <laughs> but we did talk about leadership a lot, and we did talk about dragons a lot, and we did talk about butterflies a lot. So how about butterfly versus dragon? Lessons in leadership. <laughs> Lessons in leadership. Tarantino's next film. <laughs> I love that. Lessons in leadership. Um, thank you so much. I, I Your students are lucky to have you as a teacher. Oh, thank you. It's very nice of you to say. And uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. I also want to thank California Lutheran University School of Management. And we'll just give a shout out to to Dean Gerhardt uh, for a constant stream of interesting people to talk to. Want to thank him and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio, our new microphones with uh, from Blue Microphone down in Westlake, and Cielo24, who provides the searchable captions for the show. The 805 Project is supported by partners and sponsors throughout the region. We thank them as well. More information, if you want to be, as you were saying, in our this small group of people that are working on something, uh, go to 805connect.com slash partners. And Patrick, you always you come up with clever ideas at this part of the show to, that our listener can do to help propel this show out into the stratosphere. Well, I've, I, my job's not very big on this show, so I have plenty of time to think this. So uh, what I've learned now on this show is that you have to go find somebody and say, you're a, you're a person who likes podcasts, and people who like podcasts oh. like 805 Conversations. Oh. And then I grab their phone and program it into their podcast app because that's the way to get it done. So. You're a quick study. Yes. You learned. That's, that was called um, identity-based messaging, yes, everyone. I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. So I, I would love to hear from you personally. Uh, you do send me emails. Uh, I read them, and I write back, as you know, those of you who have. Uh, you can get me at Mark at 805connect.com. Let me know what you like about the show so we can do more of that. Until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations. Mm-hmm.